So let's pray. We're in Romans chapter 1. Lord, in the times that we have together, we pray that your word will be a light and a lamp. Lord, on the first day of creation, you said to let there be light, and it dispelled all the darkness. And on that first day, Lord God, uh, it was revealed to the world that you are the creator, our God, the revealer of truth and light. And Lord, and when Jesus came, he came to be the light. He says he's the light of the world and told us we are to be the light to the world. And so, Lord, on this first day of the week, Sunday, as Christians for centuries have gathered because they remembered and they celebrated your resurrection, light has come into our lives. Darkness has been spelled out. And your word is now in our laps and in our minds and in our hearts. Please reveal it more so that we can be more like you. Reveal it more, Lord God, so darkness will be uh, shunned away from us. So that if there's any darkness at all in our hearts, Lord God, it will be dispelled by the light of your word. We thank you today and we praise you, Lord, that also on the first day of the week, you also send your Holy Spirit. As Jesus rose from the dead and sent his spirit, it was that first day of the week. The disciples were there, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were bold witnesses of your word and of Jesus' death and resurrection. Please make us like that today, Lord, that on that very first day of the week, your, your light came, Jesus rose from the dead, and the Spirit came. Lord, we're sitting here on this first day of the week. Please help us to do the same, be emboldened and empowered, that would be witnesses of your word to a dark world, and the light will dispel the darkness in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, and let's deal with the text. This is the beginning of um, this section in chapter 1 that deals with probably the most controversial one, if we're talking about 21st century America today. It's the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And the title of it today, it's maybe unusual, but I called it the good news of God's wrath. The good news of God's wrath, and you'll have to listen to the entire message to find out why it's like that, because that's Paul's uh, idea here, is there's good news in the revelation of God's wrath. Now, you would say, that sounds like a square circle. That sounds like an oxymoron. That sounds like it doesn't fit. How can wrath be good news? Well, unless God revealed it, you wouldn't know that there is wrath. Unless God revealed it from heaven that he is uh, not happy with sin, that he's angry towards sin, you wouldn't know it. And you would live your life in such a way that one day you'll go, I didn't know. I did not know that God was angry at my sin. I did not know that I was in dire need, in, dire, uh, in a dire situation. But God has revealed it. And so let's read verse 18. We're only going to read it up to verse 22. And we're going to deal with the rest of it in part two, which will be in a, in a couple of weeks. I'll be in Mexico next week. So don't, um, don't, how do I say it? Come next Sunday. It's because I'm not here. And, um, but we'll pick this up when I'm back because uh, that verse 23 to the end may put people in prison one day in the United States if you preach it. And it's getting close to that. And we'll see what that is. And hopefully you come for those, those messages there. But this is part one, the good news of God's wrath. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are, people, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or gave thanks, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their hearts were foolish, or their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So we're looking at the gospel that Paul has been revealing to us, that the gospel is the righteousness of God. It's the power of God that reveals his righteousness. You just go right down to verse 17. And the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals a few things. 
It reveals the righteousness of God, but verse 18 tells us it reveals something else, the wrath of God. So in the gospel, it is revealed a couple of things. But we've been looking at Paul teaching us the gospel, teaching us the things of Scripture. And he said in earlier messages that we had that he is not ashamed of it. He is not ashamed of the gospel. And we looked at why, and we looked at how that could happen. And Paul is writing to the believers. So he's writing to believers about the gospel. And you could say, well, why would he tell us about the gospel if we already know it? It's because we're to continue to know it, continue to live it, continue to defend it, and continue to share it, and which happens to a lot of Christians. They stop believing it because they stop sharing it. They stop believing it because they stop living it. They stop believing it because they stop defending it. And it allows all kinds of things to creep into that idea of the gospel, and it changes it. And then later on, you see even Christians, even people that once believed, get all kinds of confusing thoughts about the gospel because they literally have forgotten the basics of Scripture, the basics of the gospel. So Paul's writing to these Romans, to the Romans, and he says, The power of God is the gospel unto salvation. Salvation is ultimately what the Lord wants to do in us, not salvation from psychological problems, not salvation from physical problems, as we talked about, but spiritual salvation. That's the key part there. And the gospel, of course, is the power of God, but it's a message. It's words communicated to people from God through individuals to other people. Somebody told you the gospel. Somebody messaged you or shared with you or gave you the words to uh, or gave you words to think and contemplate, and the gospel brought you to salvation, which is the point. It's verse 16, for it is the gospel, it's the gospel. he's not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God. And that word for, those F-O-R, you find it all through verse 16, 17, and 18, is the word because, 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 because. And uh, I don't have that word there. Do I have it? Yes, there it is. The word for is because. I know we don't use that word for to... Uh, in English today, we use the word because. So it's, it's that, that's the message of Paul. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You see how it changes it because we use the word because a little more often now in our language. So language is important to keep up to date. Because it is the power of God. And because it is the power of God, it saves us, but it doesn't save everyone. It's, it's supposed to save everyone. It has the power to save everyone. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the power of God. I mean, how powerful is it if it couldn't save certain people? It is the power of God to save everyone, but everybody has to believe. That's the qualification. You have to believe. For everyone who believes, no matter the race, Jew or Gentile. And so we've been talking about, this is a recap, by the way, so if it's boring, I'm sorry. We've been talking about sin, an I in the middle, right? So if you've got to see yourself an I in the middle, you've got to see yourself as uh, in sin, you see yourself in the middle. Because that's what Paul is referring to here. And he's going to get into a very specific sin, and that's the sin of those who've thrown God off their lives. Heathens, pagans, immoral people. So those who have thrown God off their mind and off their houses and off their situations, off society, then a real terrible thing happens to that society. Sin enters in, and there's no breaks anymore. And it's just downhill from there, and you'll see that in society. You'll see that in every part of society that throws God off, sin becomes rampant. So God is revealing this through Paul about justification, about faith, and we'll talk all about that in chapter 4 and chapter 6. But for first, you have to know the first part. The bad news is there is sin. And unless you see yourself in the middle of that, unless you see yourself as one who needs salvation, unless you see yourself as one just as bad as those who are the worst sinners, then you really won't have any need for salvation. The point of God revealing it is that you have. You and I have sinned. You and I have broken God's commandments. And the person who admits it first will, the first, will be the first to have salvation. The one who fights and, 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 and rebel against God and say, no, I don't want it. This is not me. This is for other people. 
then you could say, well, went to chapter 2. Because chapter 2 and 3 reveal the sin of the religious people, the moral people, those who tried to live a good life morally without God. And so we'll see that in chapter 2 and chapter 3 because all of them have sinned. It's just in different ways. Some are secret sins, right? Some are more obvious sins. You have no way, you know, there's no doubt that a prostitute is sinning. There's no doubt. It's obvious. You can see it. They know it. People know it. Or a pimp or a drug dealer. It's obvious. But what about the sin of the moral person? What about his pride? What about his hypocrisy? What about his jealousy and envy and strife and thought life and lust and covetousness? Well, we can't see that. That person might be looking really good with a suit and tie on. But yet, Paul says, there is sin in the heart and in the way they think and in the way they approach God and the way they abandon the thought of God. And so we'll talk about that in a moment today. But the sins of the pagans are going to be the first thing he's going to deal with. But before that, he deals with this thought. Verse 18, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed. And you'll never understand the good news until you know that there's bad news. And this is why Paul deals with sin. People have tried to start in Romans chapter 4 and 6, and they go, wow, I had an interesting thought, justification, faith, salvation. You're like, man, this is great. And they don't see the beauty in it because they haven't read chapter 1 and 3. Like if you get through chapter 1 through 3 and you're not mad at me at some point, then there must be something wrong because it's supposed to create in you this idea that there's something wrong. <laughs> there's something wrong with us. The, 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 in me, I find no good thing. It's ultimately what we have to get at. In the law, of course, it exposes it and magnifies it, right? If you didn't know that there was a law against it, you would just go, I'm a pretty good person about, you know, don't do that often, but I'm pretty good. But then the law is revealed to you. You've seen it. Thou shalt not lie. And you go, oh, I have lied. I have stretched the truth. I have um, half truth and things like that. And elongated the idea that, you know, whatever I did, I, it was more than that or it was less than that. It's the law magnifies your sin. And that's what people get mad at the law. Because it actually reveals to you that you're not okay, that you need salvation. And, but it doesn't save you. It cannot possibly save you, like a thermometer. It, it won't take your fever away. You know, have you ever been healed by a thermometer? Anybody here? Uh, have you ever used a thermometer? Right. What does it reveal? That you're sick. Or well, you're okay. <laughs> In a sense. It, it reveals that you're sick. Your temperature's going up. You can fight against it. You can say, forget that nurse. She doesn't know what she's talking about. You know, I want to take that calibration on that thermometer. I'm not sick. I feel really, actually, I feel really good. Well, you might feel really good, and you can get kind of delirious sometimes, and, and uh, that's what happens when you reach a certain temperature. But no doubt, my friend, you need to go see a doctor very quickly. We need to get that temperature down quickly. A thermometer just says, you're sick, you need help. But the doctor can give you medicine. And the doctor, his name is Jesus. And he can take away the fever. The thermometer will never take away the fever. It'll just tell you that you're sick. That's what Paul says what the law couldn't do. The law couldn't make you righteous. You can keep the law all you want. It'll just expose you as somebody who cannot keep it. Because you have to keep all of it. That's the point. And you can't. And the standard that God has created for himself in terms of revealing himself in the law, it's a high standard. Who can meet it? Therefore, sin is revealed through the law. Now you stand against the law and you go, I'm not so good. I might be good next to another guy. I might not be so good next to another person, but we're all trying to calibrate with each other. God says, no, you stand next to me, and then you see you're, you're exposed. Your sins are exposed because the light of God comes into your life, and you see it. So because of this, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and all un, and, uh, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Remember, something has been revealed to us. Verse 17, the righteousness of God. Another thing is going to be revealed, the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God against? It is against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Paul uses that word because. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's why the gospel is so important. 
because there's wrath that God has toward ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the gospel is the only way to be saved out of this wrath that is revealed. Now, what's interesting about this is how do we define wrath? Because there are two misunderstandings of God's wrath. And even Christians have this misunderstanding. One, they look at God as some petty dictator or some grumpy old man. Sorry for the old man here. Uh, that wants to literally is bothered, bothered by, you're not old, brother. You know, she told you, oh, no, okay, no, 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 he's not. He's, he's younger than me, I think. Yeah, uh, revealed from heaven, but it's, he's not an angry old man. God is not a petty dictator. God is not, how would I say, you know, when you're bothered by someone and you just, hypersensitive about things and somebody does something and you get upset at them and you lash out at them and people have this idea that God is like that. But God is just waiting out there. He's ill-tempered. He's bad-tempered. He's just waiting for people to get on his case or get on his nerves and he just reacts to it. Hey, get away from me. You know, don't do that to your kids, by the way. You know, that's, that's wrong. Um, but as men, as women, as people, we become like that. Somebody gets on our nerves, we lash out, and then we interpret that that's the way God is. God is always angry and ill-tempered, and he's just upset that, you know, people are walking on his lawn and things like that, and just people get off my lawn and get away from this, and, and God is not like that at all. He's not vindictive in that way, because we look at God's wrath the way we look at man's wrath, right? Uh, he, he's not that way. He doesn't um, loses his temper, right? So think of love. You give them an example, the opposite. Think of love, right? How do you define God's love? Well, people look at man's love, men and women's love, and they say, well, God may be like that. But you could say right away, no, 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 that's not God's love. Because man's love is sort of fickled. You know, it depends on what you do for me. What have you done for me lately? I love you. If you didn't do that for me, then I won't love you, right? Man's love is fickled. It's up and down. It's based on circumstances, Right? You know, some people are very happy when things are going well, and then very angry and upset when things are going not so well. That is love, joy, that, that idea of, of, of man, the way man deals with it, and then we attribute it to God. Well, God's love is not like that, right? Because love is defined by the character of the person who's loving you. So who's loving you? Well, it's God. Well, how is God like? <laughs> then you can know his love, right? That, that's how you define love. It's not like, Oh, just love. It's like, wait a minute. Who's loving you? Is, is it your wife? Then there's a specific type of love that your wife has for you or your husband has for you, right? Well, who's loving? Who's behind that love? It's God. Well, what is he like? Well, he's good. So it's a good love, right? It's a pure love. It's a righteous love. It's a faithful love, right? You can count on it. Well, flip it around and look at his wrath. His anger, his wrath. It's not based on some emotionality, some, somebody just losing their temper. It is literally based on righteousness, truth, holiness, and doing what is right. right? And doing what is right. That's behind the wrath of God. So it's not this idea of, by the way, this is an assumption. Unfortunately, you'll find it in commentaries. People mean well by commentaries, right? And that's what you always have to keep commentaries at a safe distance in terms of how you approach it. Because it, it's men's opinions at the end of the day that you have to look at what God's word says. Now, another one that's a big assumption is this. Well, the wrath of God is impersonal, meaning that it's just kind of like the laws of, you know, reap what you sow kind of thing, uh, that there's no personal wrath coming here. It's just simply, if you mess up, you're going to face the consequences. There's no real personal vengeance that God has. There's no real personal wrath that God has. It's simply that if you do drugs, you're going to end up with some consequences. If you drink too much, you're going to end up with a bad liver. If you, you know, step off a roof, gravity will take over and you'll fall off, right? They have this idea that the wrath of God is like that. It's just an impersonal thing. It's not really him. It's just the laws of the universe that he's established on this earth. And therefore, if you break them, man, you know, you're going to face the consequences. That's also an assumption. That's not what the wrath of God really means. And you'll find that in commentaries, unfortunately, by the way. So keep an eye on those things when you read it. You go, is he trying to say this is a personal thing? And there's some commentaries that have that. And I have, them, I have those in my 
bookshelf and I go, oh, wait a minute, that's interesting how they define the wrath of God is because they're trying to sort of sugarcoat it in a sense. Like, it's not really him doing it. It's sort of like just he just set it up that way. But that's not what the Bible says. Read with me what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from where? From heaven. It's not on earth. It's not like gravity. It's not a consequences. This is really a personal wrath that comes from God. It's not an impersonal one. And remember, his wrath is not emotional. It's not petty. It's not like that. And so these assumptions have to be put under God's word. It says, what is, what is the wrath of God then? Right? It comes from heaven. It doesn't come from earth. It's from God. It's not impersonal. It's not the universe the way it's set up. Right? Um, is God angry? That's the question that we have. Is God angry? And why is God angry? And how does he show his anger? This is very basic Bible study, right? Who's angry? Why is he angry? How is he angry? And if you answer those three questions, you got Romans 1. So go home and do it, right? That's a, that's a real question. But here's the word that it's, Paul uses. It's the word orge. Anger, it literally means wrath. And the way it's put together here, it is a personal anger, right? It is a personal anger. If these things are true, if God has real anger, right? Um, let me put it in another way. If these things are true and people uh, just have to live in this world and they just face the consequences of it, right? Then, and then there's no personal wrath of God. Then it's an interesting thing because I would, I would argue that God is an evil God. That he allows people to get away with things without ever dealing with them. You know, if, there, if it wasn't a personal wrath, you know what I'm saying? Like, if God did, just didn't care, if it was just impersonal, man, you just reap what you sow, I don't care. That impersonal indifference. If God was like that, then God would be kind of evil, isn't he? Because there are people that I know that live a very godless life, no care for God, and they never suffer the consequences of anything. They, never, they die very happy. They live very godless. They make a lot of money or they have a lot of sin in their lives and they die and, they, and then they go on and they're like, oh man, there was no consequences to his life. Well, there has to be a personal wrath of God against sin and it's from heaven and it's revealed. So people have to face this and people have to deal with this because uh, it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness meaning that there's no one that will escape his wrath. No one will escape his wrath. And see, if it was this impersonal thing, then whatever you did here, that's all, that's all it is. <laughs> whatever, you, you know, whatever you did here on earth and you face the consequences, that's it. But it's not impersonal. That's not what the verse says. The verse says it's personal. It is God who's doing this. And that might make you uncomfortable. And, and hopefully it does. Because by being uncomfortable, then you seek the answers. If you were comfortable, go, I don't care. Just come on, finish up, right? But it is supposed to make you uncomfortable enough to say, it's not whether I like it or not. The question you have to ask, is it true? Is it true? Because that's the, that's the real question. That you have. Is God angry? Why? And how is he revealing his anger? Well, let's continue. When you see this, it's like this. This is how I, I would put it. Uh, whenever you see anarchy, this is Antifa group and things like that, right, that are, that are all over the different parts of the United States today. The anarchy against society, anarchy against innocent people. Um, you and I will go and say, man, this is not good. I can't believe a man just walked into a Walmart or walked into a garlic festival and shot people up. And, and this is a horrible thing. It's like, and you have the right to have feelings toward that. Don't you have feelings toward it? Unless you're doped out and just like, I don't care, just give me another one. You know? uh, and people get like that. They just, they just go on their lives without ever feeling anything because they don't want to feel anything because this world is so tough and you have to have emotions toward it. And you say, this is wrong. Have feelings toward it. Well, put it this way, where do those feelings come from? It comes from God. God has feelings toward things. God reacts toward things. The biggest thing, the biggest revelation, one of the biggest revelations I've found in my life is that God has feelings toward me. Uh, God reacts toward me. 
God is not some impersonal, indifferent God that's just hooked up on Valium. It doesn't care what people do. God has reactions to it. So do you. If this was your car, you would react to it. Now, if this was somebody else's car, you would say, too bad, man. Sorry about that. You know, I'm going to go <laughs> to another. But if this was your car, you'd say, hey, stop. What are you doing? It's my car. I paid a lot of money for it. Or if you were the engineer of this car, you know how long I took to build this thing and hours and hours and designs and failures. And, and all you do is just cut, take a sledgehammer and destroy the car. How dare you? And you would be angry. And I would say, man, you have the right to be angry. This was your car or this is your design. And look how people treat it. Well, put it in a macro way, in a big way. God has reactions toward what he's creating. What did God create? Just off the top of your head. What did God create? This world and his intentions. What was it supposed to be? What is it? Us? Yes, he did create. But what was his intention? Was it supposed to be a loving world? Yes. Was it supposed to be a peaceful world? Yes. Was it supposed to be harmony and love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness? Kind of like the fruit of the spirit, right? It was he's supposed to, that was his intention. We're supposed to live like that. He created men and women to be in that garden, to be with, with that exact mind. This is God's perfect plan for this, right? And he made the world to be good. In fact, uh, on Tuesday, he said it was double good. Right? Read that in Genesis. It was double good. He says it was good twice. So that's why some Jewish weddings are on Tuesdays in Israel. Because it was double good. Don't get married on Tuesday. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying they, they look at it that way. Double good. Really good. Meaning God says, this is excellent. This is exactly what I intended to do. Then sin comes into the world. Remember sin with I in the middle? Sin comes in the middle or sin comes in life and it destroys the world. It's the opposite of what it is. Is the world a very loving place? No. Is the world a very uh, peaceful place? Not at all. And all the killing... And you would say, man, that's terrible. But what about all the gossip and all the hating and all the strife? Right? That's part of the two. God says, I don't like that. I hate it. It's not my intention. And he has the same reaction you do if that was your car. Well, this is his world. He created. And this is your, his creation. And he says, I don't like what people have done. And God reacts to it. You realize God has feelings toward my sins and your sins. It's an eye-opening thing. If you really came down, came home, and, and pondered on it, God reacts toward my sin. And I don't think sometimes he's very happy about it. And I want to bring him joy because he also reacts to obedience. I want to bring him gladness. I want to bring him something that pleases him. You realize that you can actually affect the way God feels about certain things. What God sees you talking about him and loving others and and using his word to share with others. God says, that's what I created you for. That's what I saved you for. Right on. But when we sin and have strife and anger, especially among believers, then God says, I don't like that. Now, remember, God is not like us. He doesn't react petty or indifferent. He waits and allows things to play out. And many times he warns, he warns, he warns, he warns. Then comes the um, comes the final judgment on it. But Paul is alluding to that. Let's keep going. So all ungodliness and wickedness. Let's talk about ungodliness and wickedness here. Uh, the word unrighteousness, it's some translations have it. My translation has unrighteousness. It's also the word wickedness. But the first one is God is wrath, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Ungodliness is not atheism. Ungodliness is not uh, what's the other? Agnosticism. Ungodliness is somebody living as if God doesn't exist. Right? That's the definition of ungodliness. They could be very respectable. They could be very church attendee type. They could be the person sitting next to you or sitting behind you or sitting in front of you. And you go, oh, wow. You know, they look very kind and very nice. But they could be very ungodly, meaning that even though we're to put God first, and think of God and speak of God and put him in the center of our lives, vast majority of God's creation does not. Vast majority of God's creation people do not put God first, think of God, put him in the middle, put him in the center. They don't. They live as if God doesn't exist. Now, you can walk right up to them and say, do you believe God exists? And they can say, uh-huh, 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 yes, I do. That doesn't make them godly. 
just makes them at least a theist, <laughs> but not a godly person. Meaning a godly person is the opposite, right? It's just a simple word in the Greek language. Just put an A in front of godly. You know, somebody who's a godly is somebody who doesn't have God or doesn't think of God or it's not filled with God. The word godly, it's the opposite. Somebody who's filled with God. He's full of God. Are you godly today? Are you full of God? Are you ungodly today? I'm not full of God. I don't think of him first. I don't I put him first in my life. That's godly. That, I'm sorry, that's ungodly. Do you see how it's not the, the Satanists, you know, I'm going to say the Satanist bikers or anything like that because there's believers that ride bikes. I'm not saying that. But, uh, you know, the Satanists or the biker clubs, that's better, or the immorals or the pimp or the hookers or something like that. It's not, it, that's not ungodly. That might be part of ungodly, but it's not all that there is ungodly because an ungodly person could be very moral. It still be ungodly. A, uh, an ungodly person doesn't care about how God feels about things. He could just live his life, work on his garden, work on his car, work on his things. Never think of God. Drives through a church, and people know that there are churches all over the United States. And what do they do on Sundays or Saturdays or Wednesdays or whatever it is? They know, and later on we're going to know that they know that they need to worship God. But what they're doing is they're suppressing that which they know to be true. But anyway... The ungodly just drives by the church, drives by worship centers and prayer prayer centers, and they, and they don't want to think of God, and they just ignore God completely. And that is, my friends, the definition of an ungodly person. Is that, is that clear? An ungodly person. The Bible never refers to an ungodly person as just a sinner. It actually uses the, 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 the term the sinner or a sinner, but it uses the word ungodly, meaning everyone who doesn't really put God first or doesn't care for God or doesn't doesn't really have a full, uh, they're not full with God. That's ungodly. By the way, another attribute of ungodliness, this is another thing too, is that an ungodly person does not believe that God cares about their sin or if there's ever going to be a day of judgment or if there's ever going to be another a day of, of, of uh, retribution. An ungodly person doesn't believe that one day you'll be held accountable. They, then that's why they live the way they live. Because they can live without God because there's no consequences ahead. God doesn't care how I live, and he won't do anything about it. By the way, that's another attribute or definition of an ungodly person. The Pharisees were ungodly. Did you, did you notice that? The Pharisees were ungodly, but they were the leaders of the temple. They knew their Bibles. They could. A lot of things that they said were actually true. Not because they were right. Because the Bible is right. They were just quoting scripture. But they were ungodly meaning that they didn't really want Jesus. They only wanted their positions. They didn't really care for what Jesus said. They only cared about what they said, but they still had the appearance of religion and moral and, and, and self-righteous. Okay, so an ungodly person. This is what the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and against unrighteousness. And this is a opposite of what we talked about in verse 17, the righteousness of God, and here is the unrighteousness of men. The righteousness of God, unrighteousness of men. Uh, this is a summation of the law. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness has to do with actions toward others. Actions toward others. An unrighteous act. And what I mean by the summation of the law, look at the law. First five commandments have to do with what? Remember the commandments? They have to do with God. Love God, no idols, right? Have to do with God. The other ones have to do with relationships with others. Ungodliness, you have no relationship toward God. You may believe he exists, but you don't really, you live like he doesn't. Unrighteousness, what I do to others. And because there's no godliness, I could treat you, I could treat you very unkind. I can treat you how I want to treat you. Because I'm not full of God. When somebody's full of God, it treats the person as if there is a God, and he is in me, and I have to treat you right, right? So the law sums it all up. And, of course, what Jesus summed it all up perfectly. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's exactly what Paul is referring to. This is a summation of the law. God is against those who are ungodly or unrighteous or wicked. Right? And so godliness and righteousness, it's built literally breaking God's commandments. 
you're breaking all of God's law by being ungodly and breaking all of God's commands by being unrighteous. And if you broke one, you broke them all. So my friend, every which way we cut it, we're dealing with the wrath of God against ungodliness and unrighteousness. But let's continue. Let me give you an example. You have a car or you, you're a car maker and you design the car. And you give it to someone and you say, look, I want you to have this car. It's a beautiful car. It's a great car. It drives great. I designed it. I know. And you give it to them. And six months later, they bring it back. And it's a piece of junk. It is such a piece of junk. You can't even recognize that that's your car that you designed. And you polished and you cherished it. And you gave it as a gift. And, well, the car stinks, man. It doesn't work. What do you mean it doesn't work? Did you read the handbook? I gave you the handbook. I gave you the thing. Uh, you know, you're supposed to read oil changes, you know. Run it with oil, please. You know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, don't, don't slam on the brakes in the middle of the freeway. Did you read? No, no. I mean, I know cars. I, I, I've owned cars before, man. I don't need to read a book. Come on. And people become like that. And you think, well, you'll be angry toward that person who destroyed your car. In the same way, God feels the same way. His design, his creation, his handbook ignored his truth revealed, but people don't care. What is God going to say? Oh, indifferent. No, he's not going to be indifferent. Eye-opening revelation for all of us. God is not going to remain indifferent. He's patient, but he's not indifferent. He reacts toward my sins as much as he reacts toward the drug dealer's sin. My sins are, are no less grievous to God than the drug dealer. My sins are no less grievous to God than the hooker, than the pimp. You know, I might not be involved in that, but I still have, I could be ungodly. And God reacts. Did you see what it says? It didn't say God is against all prostitution, against all drug dealing. No, he sums it up beautifully. All ungodliness, people that don't care about God, that are moral, and all unrighteousness, people that actually do behave that way. We're all in this mess together, right? We're all in it together, and it's re being revealed from heaven. Now, the question is this. If it's revealed from heaven, right, uh, it's being unveiled from heaven, right? It is something that God is wanting to show. Here it is. It's something God wants to show. It's not hidden, which you could all say, praise the Lord. He's revealing it. And what's the purpose of revealing it? Is it the purpose of revealing it through the gospel, right? Because we're still talking about the gospel. Is the purpose of revealing it so that people can actually repent from it? Yes, without a doubt. Otherwise, this wouldn't make any sense. Why, if God is really out to get you, why didn't he just keep a secret? And one day, I'm going to get you. He's not like that. He says, I'm going to reveal how I am not pleased with this. And in such a way that you're going to know, and I'm going to show you in a minute, how you know that a person or a society or a world is already under the wrath of God to a certain extent. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, and he reveals it so people can notice it. He reveals it so people can see it. And only those who have eyes to see can actually see, oh boy, this is not good. We're parading immoral, sinful behavior in our society as normative, as normal. And I know my God, and my God doesn't stay indifferent toward that. My God doesn't want to see children being abused like that and destroyed. My God cares for the babies in the womb. My God cares for them, and he reacts toward it. And, and my friend, when you see these things in society, the wrath of God is revealed. Thank God people could see it. Certain people can see it. The rest of the world, the unrighteousness, the ungodly, will live on as if nothing's happening. Everything's good. Stock market's up. You know, it's great. Houses are up. I guess houses are always up in California, <laughs> right? Houses are up. Jobs good. Mark, did you hear Trump? He's he's good. Everything's good. Um, not so good. I read my Bible, and unless there was a major repentance, the wrath of God is going to keep being revealed. And I got, I got to get there because I got 15 minutes. But the wrath of God, it's not immediate. And you go, well, Pastor, if it's revealed from heaven, why don't you just brimstone fire, come down, take away all of the liberal politicians and stuff like that? I would like that too. But I'm not God. 
And God has mercy. And God wants him to repent and believe. Just like he wanted you to repent and believe. Remember, they're just ungodly as I was. They might be more unrighteous, but I was just as ungodly. And maybe you were just unrighteous as they were. And God had mercy on you and waited on you. I want to wait. God waits. And he has it worked out in such a way that people are going to have time to repent. Just enough time to repent. Not one second more, not one second later. It's going to be exactly the timing that God has for them. So how do you know this, right? Because the, 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 the rest of Romans, the rest of the book of Romans, or chapter 1, I should say, is going to tell us the whys and the how. You can write this down. Verses 19 through 24, I'm sorry, 19 through 22 is going to tell you why. 23 through 32 is going to tell you how. It's amazing how Paul lays this out. This is why Romans is such a beautiful book. Because here is a Jewish rabbi, Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, Shaul, teaching us a very amazing Old Testament Jewish concept, but he's putting it in a almost like a logical Greek philosopher way, so you can get it. The whys and the how. The whys and the how. How do you know God's angry? Well, you're going to see it. And Paul was living at a time where God's wrath was being revealed from heaven. And uh, by the way, when we get to it, it reads like the magazines and the, the movies that, that are out there. When we get to the list of things that are in verses 23 to 32, it's a list of things you go, man, that is happening today. I can't even deny that. Uh, but not only is God's anger revealed, but God's anger is revealed in a couple of different ways. I'm going to go back to this word, orgain. There it is. Because in the Bible, there are two ways God's wrath is revealed, or two ways that God's wrath is shown. One is a slow process. It's like a simmering. You know, you boil something, you ever cook something? You guys cook still? I know fast food is like the main thing to do now, main staple thing, but, you know, that, that can get you in a lot of trouble very quickly. Um, people cook, and you simmer something. You put something on the stove, and you let it simmer. God's anger is also shown to be like that. And this is the way it's used in this chapter. God's anger is revealed. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. It is a slow, simmering anger, meaning that it continues to go on until it boils. Then it boils, and that is what you see in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 and on. It is wrath poured out. Once it's reached the boiling point, once it's reached the, the energy has reached the point of boiling, then it is poured out. So orge can be in two ways, and this is Paul is using. I'll give you one example. Go to the next chapter, 2, just the next chapter, chapter 2, and look at verse 5, because Paul differentiates between the two. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation, apocalypses, of the righteous judgment of God who will render every man according to what he has done. So you see that it is revealed from heaven, but Paul warns in chapter 2 that there will be a day where that is going to, you're going to, you've been storing this up. You've been storing up wrath by being ungodly, by being unrighteous, by not obeying the gospel. You've been storing up wrath. And one day that wrath is going to be revealed, I mean not revealed, poured out. It's going to come out and poured out onto your life onto the world, but personal, and then, of course, in the world as well. There is a day of wrath that is appointed. It's called the day of the Lord, and we're, I can go on to another study on that topic itself. We've done it. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, another story for another time. But that is what's pointing here. A simmering anger goes on for a while. God was very patient with Egypt, very patient with the Babylonians, very patient with a lot of people. But then it comes a day when it boils over. And you see those many judgments throughout the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah. God allowed it for hundreds of years. The sin of the Amorites, for hundreds of years, God did not deal with them. But then God says, okay, I've come down, Genesis 18, and I'm going to go see what they've done. That doesn't mean that God didn't know, but he was going to, it was going to be revealed that he was angry at that sin. 
It, it came down to it one day. It happened. Happened to the Roman Empire. Happened to Jerusalem, his own temple, his own people. It happened at a time where God's wrath is boiled. But there is a day that is appointed that God is going to deal with the sins of humanity. It's the day of wrath. But let's deal with the question, why is God angry? And we'll probably have to leave the how for another time. Why is God angry? Look at verse 19. Because that which is known of God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. This is a very logical argument. God is angry. Why is he angry? Because God, because man gave up on God. They gave him up. They didn't want nothing to do with them anymore, right? And so God, that's for next time, is going to turn around and he's going to give up men. He's going to give them up. And once God gives them up, then he gives them up to whatever people want to do. And what people want to do is immoral, idolatrous, and destructive. So when God, when people give God up, we don't want him in our schools. We don't want him in our society. We don't want him in any, we don't want him in my house. I don't want to hear the name of Jesus in my house. I don't want you to say anything like that. When men give God up, then God turns around and says, fine, you don't want me? I won't be here. I'll give you up. And when he gives you up, all kinds of mayhem happens because there's no brake on society anymore. It's downhill. The car is out of control. And the parking brake, you, you ever been to like San Francisco? It's kind of scary. You go up in these hills, right? And you, you're like, man, thank God I have an emergency parking brake. <laughs> but if I were to let that go, if you just, you know, unclick it and let that thing go downhill, it is destructive, right? It could be horrible. Same thing in society. When God takes the brakes off society because they gave him up, society goes downhill very quickly. And how do you know society is downhill? When you see all the sins listed that are in verse 26 on, when those are listed, in society, you know God has given society up to their behavior, to what they want to do. And it's called the wrath of God. God reveals it to people. This is my wrath. When you see society behaving like this, I gave them up. I have given them up to their vile passions and their darkened hearts and their darkened mind. I give them up to what they really wanted to do. I've been holding back. I've been holding them back. His spirit has been holding back. The, the sin and what people wanted to do. And he's been convicting people. He's drawing people. But when society gives men up, God says, okay, that part of society, that maybe that, that particular part of the world, God gives them up. And now you see the rails are greased and they are on the way. Now let's continue. God shows his anger by giving them up. But there's a, there's a reason why they give up on God. And this is it. It's verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 18. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This idea of suppression, right? This idea of suppression has to do with, it's the word that means you tie something down with a chain. Something is held back by a chain. It suffocates. It's another translation for it. It suffocates it. Uh, they literally shut their mind off to what they know and what they think. They don't want to think about God anymore, right? So it is revealed to man, right, who suppress the truth and righteousness. The truth has been revealed to man. And you're going to see that in a moment. The truth has been revealed to man, but man suppress it. They don't want to think about it. They hold it down like in a chain. They're deliberately trying to hold back their thoughts that there is a God, that there is a Jesus, that there is truth, that there is a gospel, that there is salvation. They don't want to think about it. It's like walking through, you know, the mall, and it's just like, no, 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 I don't want to see the stars. I don't want to see the stars. I don't want to see any other. You know, we, we have people like that when we go out and, and, and pray at Planned Parenthood and, and share the gospel with them. There are people that, you know, they, they don't want to see. They don't want to know. They don't care. They, and this is how people behave toward the truth of God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And... Of course, there's the question that people always have. What about those who've never heard the gospel? What about the person in, in, you know, in, in Africa? By the way, there's less and less people like that. You know, there used to be the, the old argument in the 50s and 60s. 
as society's grown, modern society's grown, and people have gone into remote places, there's not a whole lot of people that have never heard. But even if they've never heard, there's something unique about it. God has revealed the truth to them. Has not revealed the Bible to them. Has not revealed the gospel to them. Has revealed the truth to them about himself. What things do they know? Look at verse 19. What they know about God is evident within them. Because God made it evident. What is that? In us, we know that there is a God. We know that there is a God because in our conscience, we believe that there is a higher authority, somebody that created this world, right? We believe that that is something that we need to, uh, someone that we need to worship, innate in all of us, inside every person. Maybe not a churchgoer, maybe not somebody attended or heard the gospel before, but they know that there is a God. They know that it is true. They suppress it, though. They suppress it because they don't want to know, right? And uh, when you go to, like, pagan areas, pagan societies, right, remote places sometimes, paganism is literally, or the culture is trying to keep the truth of God down. And they do it by putting idols and putting all kinds of superstition and things like that. They know it's true, but they use other methods and other religions to put the truth of God down. Uh, I'll give you one example. It would be like, think of the family love. Even hardened sinners have this loyalty to family. I once w watched a video or a documentary on gangsters. Kind of things that I watch sometimes. It was interesting. It was about the mafia, you know. Uh, no offense to anybody here. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was interesting because even though they were awful and terrible, you know what they were like? They were faithful and loyal to family. I'm not saying that was a good thing, but the reality was as bad as they were. And you, they interviewed him. I never turn on my family. <laughs> you know, never go against my mother. You know, uh, you know, you know, blood sick in the water, that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> yeah, never do that. You know, that it, it's just they were so loyal, and and even like people gangsters that have gotten that become believers. They, they, they knew that they were supposed to protect the weak, even in gangs. I've never been a part of a gang or anything like that. Uh, but people that have, they said, you know what? Even though we were like that, we always protected the weak, the young, those who couldn't, you know, couldn't make it. If somebody picked on them, we, got, we went after them. There was a sense of love and loyalty that you have for certain people. Like, I think about this. Why do family, like you know, I witness to people, and I, share, I usually share this illustration. I said, you love your kids. Yeah, absolutely. You love them, and you, would you die for them? Absolutely, I would. Where did you know? Where would that come from? You know, how, why would you want to die for someone else? You know, the, the love you have for your children. You're willing to give up your own life. Where did that come from? They're like, I never thought about it. You know, it came from God. Because God put that in you. Because we're creating his image and likeness. He put that love in us for family. Why? Because God wants a family. And he put that in you, so you can want a family. And to love a family. God is faithful. He wants you to be faithful. Now, of course, it gets corrupted and it gets distorted by sin, but there's still that element in us that we know that we're to do good. That's what God has made evident. That's what he says. What has been known about God, it is evident within them. People know that there's a right and wrong. Even if they never went to a church, never heard about the Bible, they know that we're to treat others in a good way. Even the Babylonians, God says in the book of Amos, even the Babylonians, God judged them. Not on the Ten Commandments, by the way, which is really interesting. God judged them on the basis of they knew what right and wrong was. They were supposed to be merciful, and they were not. And God eventually judged them. Gave them time to repent, but they were anything but merciful. And it was on the basis they were to know God, and they were to be merciful to others. And that is what everybody knows. Did you know why people have pets? You ever thought about why people have animals? No? Yeah. Love. I want somebody to love. I want something to protect. I want, you see, I don't know if you're a dog lover or not or a cat lover. I don't know. But you see a stray dog and going to get hit on the freeway. People stop and go, oh, oh, oh somebody get, call them one, one. You know, they get off the car and they go get him. Stop the car. Stop the car. Let me get, Right? 
maybe you don't do that for cats, but you know, maybe a dog or something like that, right? But that's, yeah. Or a bunny, you know. Uh, but people adopt pets. Do you have pets at home? You know, some, you know, you want somebody to protect. You want somebody to love. You want, you know, they're so innocent. You're a little puppy. Oh, the puppy. You know, you want the puppy. Where does that come? I mean, you ever thought about it? where does that come from? Like, you know, I'm, I'm probably just really weird because I always question myself. How did I feel that way? Why did I feel bad about that? Right? And it, 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 there's no other alternative because we didn't create ourselves. There's something in us. We come pre-programmed, as, as it were. Now, the code has been corrupted, if you want to put it in, 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 uh, in technical terms and programming software terms. The code, the source code, has been corrupted, but there's elements of it that are genuinely true, that you have loyalty and love and family love, and you would give up anything for your children. You know, it's really when somebody has gone so far that they don't care about their children anymore. And I've seen parents just go completely, usually drugs and things like that, that alters their mind and alters their their, 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 their psyche, and then they just go off, right? But for the most part, the average person loves their children, wants to, even willing to die for them. Why? Because God put that in there. Protecting others, blessing others. Don't you like to give gifts? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a thing that people have. It's like if there was a, you know, if we had a baby shower, right? people want to give gifts. If somebody was in need of something here, if people just want to give gifts, like, hey, there's a need. Oh, what can I do to help? You know, it's, it's intrinsic, and it's, it's there, it's there. As a Christian, it gets magnified because of Christ. Because Christ is like that. The fruit of the Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit, it magnifies it to the degree that now a uh, picture of Christ. It, it's supposed to resemble what Jesus has done for it. But every person has the capacity to do that. Now, what have they done with that? They suppressed it. Another thing that they can know right away is true. It's the power of God. It says, it is evident within them. God made it evident for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power. I was not a Christian for a long time. <laughs> and I knew that there was a God, but I also knew that this world did not become an act, it did not come about because of accidental circumstances. I knew it, but I would not admit it. I'm admitting it now. Yeah. I knew it, but I would not admit it. It made no sense. But that's what we were told. And if you wanted to get a good grade, <laughs> and if you wanted to be a doctor and be famous and be rich and be in a documentary and things like that, they still do that today, by the way, then you don't say it. But privately, hmm, we, looked at, we looked at an eye, literally an eye, you know, and uh, diagrams of eyes and real eyes and, you know, things like that. And how does this come about? The, the optical nerves are phenomenal, amazing. You know, um, the, the chiasma, the, 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 the optical nerves and the, the chiasma, how you see upside down, but then there's something in your eye that puts the picture right up. And you're like, man, if that was uh, evolution, you would have been walking upside down for millions of years. You couldn't really, how would you ever get around anywhere, right? Um, but there's something in the eye that is so perfectly made that it just turns the picture, puts it right up. And you wouldn't even know it because you didn't know that, right? But it's, it, it's there. You look it up, and you're like, just the eye. But just look at, look at, look at creation. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Look at creation. Tell me, who did it? And even the hardest scientists looked at the sun, and they go, hmm, well, if we go by logic, right, which they don't have, but if we go by logic, whoever made that, it's bigger than that. Whoever made the sun has to be bigger and powerful than the sun because the laws says... You can't create something that is beyond you, meaning that you have the capacity to create something, you have the power to create something, but it cannot be in a capacity greater than you. You have to have more power than what you create. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a creator. So whoever created the sun has more power than the sun, and it's unbelievable power that's in the sun. I mean, we get a little bit of it to harness electricity and things like that, but it is phenomenal. Whoever did that, it's big. He's really big. <laughs> whoever hung those stars, it's amazing. Whoever made this planet, it's incredible. And it just did. Now you have the options spontaneous circumstances, right? <laughs> Accidental circumstances, right? Uh, it just happened. <laughs> Big explosion blew up, something like that, right? And they tell you that, right? Accidental circumstances, right? 
random chances of the millions of years and eventually blew up and it blew up again and it blew up again and it blew up again and eventually became what you have today. Boy, that's, a, that's quite a stretch. But they, they see that suppression? They suppress the truth. All they have to do is go outside, look up and go, wow! I want to worship him who did that. <laughs> if anything, that's all they would have to say. Whoever did that, I'm bowing down. Because he's greater. He has, he's, he's amazing because he did that. His divine nature. The divine nature that, that I did here is, whoever did that is not human. God has shown them his eternal power and his divine nature, meaning that whoever made the stars... You ever, you ever go to the desert and look at the stars and they go, how many are there? Jeez, Luis, this is crazy. It's amazing. And you go to the Grand Canyon, you go, wow. And by the way, I, I have, you know, that's not even what it was supposed to be. That was after, you know, a catastrophe. And you go, wow, phenomenal. And you look at the pictures of the universe and the stars and all that. Beyond your finding out, it cannot be a human. A human did not do that. So God's revealed that to them so that you know that a human did not create the world. It was someone divine, someone with a lot of power, and someone who put something in you to demonstrate that he's real, and every man's conscience knows that. But what do they do when that happens? Well, that'll be for the next time, right? When God has shown it to them completely, there is no excuse for atheism, and there's no excuse for agnosticism like what I pretended to be, right? There's no excuse. You can know there's a God. You can know he's powerful. And you can know that he's made you in his image and likeness. Every person, my friend, you can take that to the bank. Well, don't take it to the bank anymore. They can say that anymore. <laughs> Steal it from you. You can know that for sure. People know this. They are suppressing it to such degree that they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to see it, they get angry at it, but every person in this world knows it. Therefore, when we send missionaries, or as we're going to go to Mexico, we're not going there to make people, we're not telling them something that they don't know already. You know what I'm saying? It, it's something they know, but they've been suppressing it. Now, next time we, we do this, you're going to know that what they've done is replaced their knowledge of God and they've added on to the knowledge of God, suppressed the truth, and replaced it. What did they replace it? Idolatry, idols, images, anything that does, it's not the creator. And they actually will end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen, right? And by the way, it doesn't mean that you're going to go down and get a Buddhist uh, thing or you know, a statue or some saint or something like that. A creature could be yourself. People worship the creature in many different ways. When you live for yourself, when it's about you, you worship the creature rather than the creator. And people are guilty of that. Because some people say, oh, I don't have idols at home. What are you talking about, man? I'm going to do that. But man, I stare one at the, in the mirror every day. Right? And I make sure that idol is really taken care of. And I think about that idol quite a bit. And God says, you're serving the creature rather than the creator. But everybody knows this. So uh, Psalms tells us all about it, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. Look at Psalm 19. Read it on your own about the sun. The sun, the Bible says the sun runs its circuit. And all through the world, not a language or people are silent. Or at least un, um, not a language or people are blinded to the fact that there is a sun. And that sun is declaring the glory of God. Everybody sees the sun can know, wow, powerful. Psalm 19 tells us all about it. Well, that's it. Now we know the why. God is angry because he, he's been replaced. Next week, we're going to know who replaced them. Creatures. And then you're going to see how God is going to deal with this. Because my friend, you guarantee this, God is not going to sit idle. His judgment may delay, but the Bible says to wait for his coming, to wait for his reality of his revelation that's going to come. That's why we need the gospel. Because if this is what's coming, my friend, for every person in this world, in this, in this entire planet, 
if this is the wrath of God coming, there's only one hope that they have. The gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's the only way to say, it's the only way to say that of it. So that's why missionaries are needed. Because people are guilty. People are guilty of suppressing the truth. And all a missionary comes to do is to tell them, you're guilty? Here's the solution. You know, it used to be that they used to say, oh, don't go to places like that. They're innocent. They don't know any better. They're innocent. Don't send missions. It's a big movement, like in the mid-1900s. Don't send. Don't go out to the places of the world. They're innocent. They have their own culture. They, have, they, they worship God their own way. Don't worry about that. Don't send missionaries. It's going to spoil them. My friend, if you don't send missionaries, they are guilty already. You can't get saved unless Jesus saves you, unless the gospel saves you, unless they're faithful to what they know, and you need to tell them. So, and, and missionaries actually going there, literally, to tell them what they already know and to bring them out of what they've been suppressing and to bring them to salvation. So, what a need. Much needed. Not just in the outer parts of the earth, but in our own area, in our own cities. Let's pray. Ask the Lord for his help. Lord, in Jesus' name, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for Paul and the message of the gospel. I thank you for the truth that has been revealed from heaven. The truth, Lord God, that you are not indifferent against sin. And that you're going to make sure that this world, Lord, will one day know that they are to be worshiping you and following you rather than anything else that they have made for themselves. Lord, forgive us. Lord, for making an idol out of things instead of you. Forgive us, Lord God, for being ungodly in our lives, for forgetting you and forgetting the things that you've taught us. Help us to return to you, Lord. As you said, that it is, it is possible and it's very possible to return to you, Lord. You made it clear that you want us to come back. So, Lord, help us to come back to you. Lord, we don't want to replace you. We want you to be our all in all, like the song says. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace, your mercy. We pray, Lord, for those who have heard the message that they would turn to you, turn to the salvation found in Jesus Christ. And we pray for our society, Lord, that although, although we see the signs of the wrath of God, Lord, we also see the gospel going forth in power and strength for salvation to bring people out of darkness into light. Lord, give us an unction of the Spirit. Give us a strength and a courage to go to the lost and to the world and to people that need to know that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, but something else has been revealed, the gospel, the righteousness of God, Christ Jesus, making us right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.